Coming up, should you be considering a 4K TV when you do your holiday shopping? Why Amazon customers can't watch YouTube anymore? And we cover something most other tech podcasts refuse to, low-end technology. It's Wednesday, the second best day of the week. This is Steve Tushankel, and you're listening to the New England Tech Podcast. Tech Podcast is brought to you this week by Hammerhead Content Management Solutions for media organizations and content creators. You love to write, so why do you hate to publish? Visit us at hammerheadcms.com. That is H-A-M-M-E-R-H-E-D-C-M-S.com. Music in the show is by Kurt Baker, Lame Drivers, Monkey Mind, The Pharaohs, and The Barracudas. So just as I was sitting down to record the podcast this week, I got an alert on my phone, a breaking news alert, about Google pulling YouTube from the Fire TV and the Echo Show, both of which are Amazon products. The Fire TV is something that we've talked about here before. A lot of people are probably familiar with it. It is a streaming media device produced by Amazon. I'm an avid user of it myself. Love the Fire TV. It's actually my favorite streaming media device. The Echo Show, another Amazon product, is the visual version of the Echo, which of course is the very popular speaker that Amazon produces, this smart speaker that you can talk to and will basically follow whatever orders you want and answer your questions via the miracle of artificial intelligence and Amazon's very large library of stuff, of music, of whatever, whatever you want, various apps. The Echo Show gives a visual a visual element to the Echo. Um, haven't really used it myself, haven't actually ever used it myself, but definitely an intriguing product. But you can no longer use YouTube on it or the Fire TV. And this is just another example of the pissing match, if you will. I know I didn't mark this for explicit content. I hope pissing isn't too dirty for anyone out there, but that's really what this is. The pissing match between Amazon and Google. Apple is also a part of this. These companies are at each other. They don't like each other. They all want to dominate the field of anything, right? Of streaming devices, of media, music, video, whatever. They all want to dominate it, and they're all always at each other and fighting each other. For a long time, Amazon video content, for example, was not available on the Apple TV. Now it's becoming available on the Apple TV, but they have to come up with these deals with each other. They have to sit down and hammer it out and decide what's in my interest, what's in their interest. It's probably this big nightmare if you're in the boardroom figuring it out. But that's the way it is when you have these giant tech companies that are just fighting to dominate your life and to control pretty much everything in your life. Now, this is not the first time that Google has pulled YouTube from the Echo Show. They've actually done it already. Uh, There used to be a dedicated app uh, for YouTube on the Echo Show, and three months ago, Google pulled it. They said, we're not getting enough from you, Amazon, so your users can't use YouTube, which obviously is a tremendously 
tremendously popular app. And that was really the first salvo uh, on behalf of Google in this giant battle that these companies are having with each other. Amazon and Google particularly are at each other. I said Apple's in there too, but Amazon and Google, these people hate each other. Um, and of course, Apple hates Google too. They all hate each other, right? Let's be fair, they all hate each other. Um, Amazon actually retaliated when uh, Google pulled YouTube from the Echo Show three months ago. They stopped selling various Nest products, which are produced by Google, such as the Nest thermostat, their signature product. Now, what happened when, so you may ask, what am I talking about if this was already pulled? Well, two weeks ago, Amazon actually managed to get YouTube back on their device just by redirecting users to the web version of YouTube. Now what Google is saying is you can't use the web version of YouTube on the Echo Show either, which to me is really, really dirty. I really don't like that. That is contrary to the spirit of the internet. And we talked a lot about net neutrality in last week's show. That's kind of what a lot of people are afraid of when it comes to the reversal of net neutrality rules. The idea of the internet is that if a website exists, you should be able to access it from any internet connected advice, a device. And that includes YouTube, that includes any website. Any company, in my mind, that blocks you from being able to access their website from a certain device is not following the spirit of the internet. And that is a spirit that I personally fell in love with back in the mid-90s, back in the early 90s, right? That was the promise of it, that anyone could access anything, that everything is equal, right? So it all comes back to net neutrality even. You know, Google has this famous slogan that they haven't talked about much lately, but everyone used to know, they said, don't be evil. This is frankly evil. It's evil to cut Amazon users who have paid for this product, right? They've paid for the Echo Show because they know that they'll be able to access all these services on it, including YouTube. And Google is saying, eh, the hell with you, because we don't like Amazon. We want to have this pissing match with Amazon. We want to have this power struggle with Amazon. So we're going to hurt the users. That violates Don't Be Evil. That, that's just my opinion on that. And it's a correct opinion. <laughs> I'm pretty confident that I'm right on that one. I don't give you my opinions because I think they're wrong. I'm, I'm pretty uh, egalitarian uh, about these sorts of things. But I really do think that this is uh, a trend that has to stop. Now, as for me, I'm a Fire TV user and I'm going to be restricted from using YouTube on my Fire TV. Now, this personally doesn't affect me. The truth is, even though YouTube is a very popular app on the Fire TV, I don't really use it. If I want to use YouTube, I'm going to use it on my laptop, right? Or maybe I'll use it on a tablet, but generally not the Fire TV, even though it is possible. Still, even though this won't affect my life, I'm concerned about what this means to other users who do use it a lot. I'm concerned about what this means just theoretically, right? Now, Roku is a company and a series of devices that we've talked about uh, uh, to a pretty good extent uh, here on the podcast. I'm a big fan of Roku, not necessarily because of their products or their software. I prefer to use Amazon's Fire TV rather than Roku's streaming media player, and I use both, right? I use Roku and I use Amazon, and I use both of them on a semi-daily basis, almost a daily basis, and I am frankly 
more impressed with the Fire TV software and what Fire TV can do. But what's so great about Roku? Roku tends to be neutral in these fights. They don't have their own content. Roku doesn't produce TV shows. They don't produce movies. All they do is devices. So they are agnostic as to content produced by other people. Roku is interested in getting you as much content as possible. That means if you want to watch Google's content that they produce through YouTube, if you want to watch Amazon's content that they produce, if you want to watch Netflix, whatever, all these companies that fight with each other, Roku doesn't take sides. They like all of them. So that's really a reason to support Roku. I think this whole idea of independence, personally, I prefer other products, but I'm nonetheless a big fan of Roku because of this attitude, and I will remain a big fan as long as these battles continue. All right, now that we got that out of the way, it's time to see what is in the news. has officially announced its new lightweight version of Android. It is called Android Oreo Go Edition. You know, so many tech podcasts out there, and I've certainly listened to a good number of them, focus on high-end technology. They're directed at hobbyists, and they are hosted by hobbyists, and hobbyists like high-end things. They like the latest and greatest and coolest and edgiest, and they like having their $1,000 iPhones, and they like bragging about what they have and what they can do and what they can afford. I personally sometimes like talking about the lower end of the technology world because that's the technology that is really going to change our world, in my opinion. Now, way back in May, Google announced a new product called Android Go. And this week, that product was finally launched as Android Oreo, Oreo being the latest version of the standard Android Go Edition. Android Oreo Go Edition. Now, what is it? It is a stripped down version of Android intended for lower power devices. So it's a lighter Android. Because that smartphone that you have in your pocket, that $1,000 iPhone, may not be accessible to everyone. In fact, Android or Google announced that Android Go would be a reality at an event in India. And India, which has a billion people, is a country where most people have a lot less money than they do in the United States of America. They can't necessarily buy those $1,000 iPhones. So they have to rely on lower power devices, which can't necessarily run the full version of Android effectively. And that is why Android Go needs to exist. Now, Google has big plans for this product. They don't plan on neglecting it, as you might expect. Whether they do neglect it remains to be seen. Sometimes that does happen after a ballyhooed rollout slash announcement. But Google claims that Go will be updated and released on exactly the same schedule as plain Android. So they believe in these developing markets and they believe in lightweight operating systems for lower power devices. And I believe in that too. Now, 
this is India we're talking about. They announced this in India for a reason. That's really what they're targeting. But what about back here in America? Well, let's look at the stats, shall we? Back in January of 2017, 77% of Americans owned a smartphone. Now, that seems like a pretty large number, but 95% of Americans have a cell phone of some kind. 77% have a smartphone, 95% have a cell phone. That is still a huge number of people who have a cell phone, and that's virtually everybody, but don't have a smartphone. Why is that a problem? Smartphones are critically important today. Why is that? It's because they're the only computer that many people have access to. Now, for me, personally, I've got access to a ton of computing devices, laptop computers, desktop computers, tablets, you name it. That's not true for a lot of people. A lot of people, if they want to really access the internet and take advantage of everything the internet can bring us, they really need a smartphone. And certainly, the type of people who don't have a smartphone tend to be the same type of people who don't have access to any other sort of computing devices either, any sort of connected devices. Think about this, how much easier is it for you to get a job if you don't have one, if you have access to a smartphone, if you do have a job and need a better one? How important is that? It makes it easier to maintain relationships with important people in your life, just to find your way around. I think about this every time nearly that I use Google Maps or Waze any sort of GPS app. I think about how hard it used to be to find places, how I would be late when, in fact, I can find anything easily now because I've got this app on my phone. So how important is that? If you have a lower income, a smartphone can be a critical way of accessing government benefits, right? Now, the first modern smartphone was the original iPhone. It was released in 2007. Smartphones existed before that. I believe that term was actually coined for the BlackBerry or maybe even a little bit before the BlackBerry. But we can consider the modern smartphone era to have started in 2007 with the iPhone. That is 10 years ago, almost 11 years ago, because New Year's is coming up, right? So we're at a point where everyone should have access to this technology, but a lot of people still don't. Now, I myself didn't have a smartphone for a long time, probably longer than you'd expect for someone who's hosting a tech podcast here because I didn't think it was a very good value for me, but it's the best value for these other people who don't have access to anything else. It's cheaper than a laptop, particularly a low-end smartphone, right? You can get a low-end laptop for cheaper than you can get the newest iPhone, but a low-end smartphone, and there's some pretty good smartphones out there available for 50 bucks to 100 bucks. There really are some really usable ones that I believe in that, and that I have used. Um, so it's, it's important. It's important that Google is doing this. And we ragged on Google a little bit earlier in the podcast in our first segment, and they deserved it. But Google is doing good things at the same time. You know, you've got don't be evil and they're doing the evil, but they're also doing the good. That's why they're such a fascinating company. I really do think that they do a lot of good, though I do not ignore the evil that they are doing. Um, now, Android Oreo Go Edition will include scaled down versions of common Android apps and all of them have the Go suffix. So that's YouTube Go, YouTube, right? Which you can't access 
on Amazon devices anymore. Well, you can access on lower-end smartphones now because you've got YouTube Go. There's Google Maps Go. I talked about the importance of navigation before. Gmail Go. All these productivity apps uh, that will really enable people who can't afford the best smartphones to live a better life because that's the promise of technology and that's the promise of smartphones. So it's not surprising, right, that I think that it's critically important to make sure that technology doesn't enforce a division between the haves and have-nots, but rather brings opportunity to everybody. And I can't give up on Google because they're doing these great things, even though sometimes they may do things that I think are highly problematic. Next up, Facebook has opened up to children under 13 with their new Messenger Kids app, which launched on iOS this week. For the first time ever, children under 13 years of age can use Facebook. Now, if you don't have a child under 13 years of age or a little bit over 13 years of age, you may not be aware that kids under 13 can't use Facebook. But I'm intimately familiar with this because I used to work for a children's media company. I've got a ton of experience with this professionally. This is something that I had to deal with every single day. There is a law called the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA, C-O-P-P-A. I don't know why that's pronounced COPPA and not COPPA, as the double P would imply, but this is not an English language podcast. Well, it is an English language podcast in that it's in English, but it's not a podcast about English. It's a podcast about tech, so I will drop that for the time being and just use the standard pronunciation of COPPA. COPPA was passed in 1998, and it ensures that access to websites that require personal information is very difficult for children under 13. Notably, a lot of people, even people who are pretty familiar with COPPA, assume that COPPA makes access to registration for children under 13 illegal. It does not make it illegal, and this is something that I used to have to deal with a lot. A lot of people miss that about COPA. What it does, it makes it so difficult and so onerous to configure and set up and plan that almost nobody bothers doing it. And Facebook wasn't doing it either. But now Facebook sees an opportunity. They will try to deal with those onerous COPA regulations. And here's how they're going to do it. And welcome to a glimpse into my previous life. Basically, Parents are going to have to download this new app, this new kids messenger app, on their child's device. The child cannot download it themselves. The parent is going to have to download it. Then the parent, not the child, has to create a profile for their kids, and then they must approve all contacts. Now that approving all contacts, that's not part of uh, conforming to the COPA regulations. That's about what Facebook thinks parents will be comfortable with. But that downloading the app, instead of the kid downloading the app, creating a profile for the kid, that's COPA stuff right there. And you can see why that would be logistically difficult for a lot of people, but very few have the resources that Facebook does. Now, kids will be able to create, um, and well, actually, they won't create an account, but parents will be able to create an account for their kids without a Facebook account for the kids. And a phone number which is personally identifiable information, or PII, will not be required either. 
How does Facebook know that they're getting this right? Well, they're Facebook. So they've actually been working with the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, to make sure that all of this is above board and legally on the up and up. There's also filtering in place in this app to prevent nudity or sexual content or violence. So without even any human intervention, a lot of this stuff is going to be prohibited. But what if some of it gets through? Facebook's thought of that too. They have a dedicated support team that is on duty. It's gonna be dedicated just to messenger kids so they can be ready to jump on any reported violations immediately. So all this sounds like pretty serious business, right? Sounds like some, some strict stuff. It sounds like they're really working to protect kids out there from any issues that might occur. Well, they are trying to make sure that the app is fun as well. It'll have loads of kid-friendly features. It'll have those augmented reality masks that have become very popular in chat apps, but these will be developed specifically for preteens, like they've got a fidget spinner mask plan, so you can put a fidget spinner in your face. You can make yourself look like a dinosaur, all the kind of things that preteens love. Now, why is Facebook doing this anyway? Well, they're not making any money off of it. They're not going to make a dime off of it, at least not yet. These kids, however, will overwhelmingly transition to be real Facebook users, to be genuine registered Facebook users, we can assume, when they come of age and turn 13. Now you may say, well, isn't everyone on Facebook already? Who cares? Aren't these kids going to get on anyway? That's not necessarily true anymore. It's not necessarily a given. When I worked in youth media, what we learned is that kids don't necessarily like Facebook that much. They see it as something that their parents use to spy on them. And by the way, parents will not have the ability with messenger kids to spy on their kids, interestingly enough. And that may very well be because of this perception that kids have as Facebook, um, of Facebook as a parental spying mechanism that they want to avoid very much. So that functionality is not in there. Despite all these security features, parents can't actually see what their kids have done. They can approve contacts, but they can't see what the kids have talked about with these contacts. So kids not as big on Facebook as their parents were. They like Snapchat. They like Instagram. These are the social media applications that they like. Facebook wants to convert them. Facebook wants to make sure that when they turn 13, they're in there and they're there for life. But here's a secret for you. I've got a big secret that you're only going to learn by listening to this podcast. Shh, don't tell anybody. The kids are often there already. Tons of kids are registering for Facebook today with fake birthdays. You didn't think 12-year-olds were stupid, did you? You didn't think they'd find a way to get around that, lying about your age. You ever go to an alcohol site, like a site for uh, liquor or something like that, where uh, they ask you to enter your age? <laughs> I, I often wonder how many kids go to these the, these landing pages and say, oh, well, here you know here's my birthday in, in 2005. Oh, I can't get in. What a bummer. Why can't I get in? I don't understand. It's not like you can just reload it after your birthday again or anything or open up an incognito window and try it again. So this is this is a little silly. A lot of this stuff is really just to satisfy different laws. But Facebook is taking this seriously nonetheless. And Messenger Kids is real. It's real and it is a real attempt to cater to kids and, of course, to make kids into Facebook users for life. 
Facebook's not done, even though teenagers can register for Facebook. Rumors have been swirling for months that Facebook is also working on a new messaging app for teens. So even though teens can get on real Facebook, they may be a little bit averse to Facebook for whatever reason. The parental spying, for example, Facebook is saying, you know what, teens, we can accommodate you. You don't have to use anyone else. Facebook is where it's at, and that is why Facebook is the giant, unstoppable force that it is, no matter what kids think. I can't promise that you like me, because you could go downhill. In case you haven't noticed, the holiday season is very much upon us. Lots of holiday cheer out there, lots of holiday music. I've certainly heard a lot of it in my home lately. Tons and tons of music and tinsel. Well, no tinsel in my house, but music, certainly. So the holiday season is here, and maybe you've been inside a big box store lately, like a Best Buy or some sort of department store or Target. Maybe you've been in there, and maybe you've wandered back to the electronics department. If you're listening to this podcast, I am guessing that you have. Well, if you wander back to the big row of TVs, that big display, tons and tons of TVs, you have probably seen a lot of 4K, 4K this, 4K that. What does it all mean? Now, I myself got my first 4K TV recently, and 4K TVs are what electronics manufacturers are pushing in the TV space, big time. 4K is really just the next evolution of HDTV. If you were of age, you will remember when flat, widescreen HDTVs supplanted these big, clunky CRT cathode ray tube TVs, which had standard definition video and announced that the high definition era had begun. It's been a while since that happened. You've probably had these HDTVs for a while. Well, now, TV manufacturers are saying, that's old news. We know you moved to the HDTV years ago. You need a new TV. You need a 4K TV. Now, 4K means more pixels on the screen. People will tell you a lot of things, but that's basically all it means. It's just the resolution. You may have also heard the term Ultra HD or UHD. You may have seen those initials. UHD and 4K mean the same thing, more or less, more or less. 4K is a minimum resolution of 3,840 by 2,160 pixels. I say more or less, because there's also something called 8K, which is an even higher resolution, but that is still really on the edge. So we will not even discuss that right now. By contrast, there is something called 1080p. The TV that you have right now may well be a 1080p television. It's sometimes known as full HD, and that is a resolution of 1920 by 1080 pixels, 1080p. So we're talking with 4K about a difference of 3840 by 2160 to 1920 to 1080. You can see there's a lot more pixels on the screen. And more is better, right? Isn't more always better? Well, not necessarily. Is 4K really worth it? It depends. Your eye can only do so much. This is a biological reality. You may recall years ago, Apple unveiled a new display 
on its iPhone called the Retina Display. They still talk about the Retina Display. And why do they call it the Retina Display? Well, the idea is, yeah, you could fit more pixels on the screen, but what's the point? Your eyes are not fancy enough to even detect the difference, to even recognize these additional pixels. So when they unveiled the original Retina Display, the whole idea of the marketing was, this is as good as you're gonna get. We can improve this, and they have continued to improve it, but they were saying, this is as good as it gets, forget it, right? So your eye can only perceive so much. Whether or not a 4K TV will make a difference for you depends entirely on how close you're sitting to the TV and how big the TV is. And because I am such a service journalism type of guy here on the New England Tech Podcast, I have pulled together some stats for you. Do you have a pen and paper? I hope you do. do you, have you loaded up Google Keep or some other note-taking app? Maybe Evernote? Please do because here's some important information for you. If you are sitting four feet away from a 32-inch 4K TV, you are not going to see the difference between that and Full HD. You're not going to see it. You really have to be sitting about two feet away from the TV for a 32-inch 4K TV to make a difference. And very few people are sitting two feet away from their TV. If you are, please don't. You shouldn't be. So you don't have to buy a 32-inch 4K TV. It is simply unnecessary. Now, 50 inches is a very common television size. At that distance, you'll start to notice a difference at just about two and a half feet away. So you can see here that even at that pretty large screen size, you're not really seeing much of a benefit until you're sitting quite close. So why are people going nuts about 4K TV? Why is this higher resolution being pushed so hard by television manufacturers? Well, think about what we talked about at the beginning of this segment. Think about the experience of walking into a Best Buy and taking in this big, big wall of beautiful, beautiful televisions with beautiful price tags on them, right? Where are you looking at these TVs? How are you looking at them? You're standing right in front of them. You're walking right up and you're staring them right in the face. You're staring these parrots that they love to show right in the face. You're staring these cityscapes right in the face. These ocean scenes, these beautiful, beautiful images that they play on these screens, your nose is right up against them and that is where you're going to see the difference. You're gonna say, oh my God, look at how great this parrot looks. Look at the plumage. Look at the beautiful plumage. Is that the first Monty Python reference I've made on this podcast? I think it is. I think it is well overdue. This is a tech podcast. There should be Monty Python references. Plumage, right? You'll be impressed by that. But when you bring it home, you're gonna be less impressed because you're gonna be sitting farther away and you're not necessarily going to notice the difference. It's marketing and it's pretty brilliant marketing. It's brilliant marketing. Now, something else you may be hearing a lot about is HDR. 4K TVs are often marketed as 4K HDR TVs, leading you to believe that maybe HDR and 4K are the same thing, just like UHD and 4K are the same thing. They're not the same thing, it's different. HDR stands for high dynamic range. It's color contrast, it's not sharpness, it's deeper colors, it's bigger differences between light and darks. Now, a lot of people think that this HDR makes a bigger difference 
than the 4K. If you are buying a 4K TV, you are probably also buying an HDR TV, but make sure to check. They are not the same thing and you are not necessarily buying both at the same time. But a lot of people are very, very big on HDR. Now I've been looking at HDR photos because as a hobby, I like looking at lovely photography sometimes. I've been looking at HDR photos for, for years and they can be really, really striking, really, really beautiful as opposed to standard photos. I'm not necessarily sure I see as big a difference with video, at least not with the video content that I've consumed so far. But there are a lot of people who love the, that HDR programming. And by the way, when I say, at least with the programming I've seen, that's another issue with 4K and with HDR content. Now more and more 4K and HDR content is becoming available, but most content that you watch on TV, it still isn't. If you're someone who's watching a lot of network TV, it's not gonna be HDR, it's not gonna be 4K. It's really streaming content providers, such as Netflix and Amazon that are transmitting in 4K right now. And by the way, Netflix makes you pay extra for that privilege. I actually subscribed to the 4K version of Netflix. I paid a few bucks extra a month for about a month. And then I decided that I couldn't really see much of a difference and I canceled. Now your mileage may vary, right? A lot of people would probably virulently dispute what I just said. So I have to give them credit, but I didn't think it was worth a few extra bucks a month. That's the reality for me, and that very well may be the reality for you as well. So if you have a 4K TV, give it a try, but be open-minded about it. Now, of course, eventually this decision is going to be made for you. Just like with an HDTV, you cannot buy an old-fashioned CRT TV anymore. You can only buy an HDTV, whether that be 4K or less or full HD. So the decision is going to be taken out of your hands. In some years, whenever that might be, you will be incapable of buying a TV that's not 4K and you will have one. But in the meantime, there's a lot to think about. So consider all your options and consider how you watch TV, how you consume your entertainment, what kind of entertainment you consume. And once you start thinking about these things, the decision will come together as to whether 4K is right for you. Have you heard anyone ask that? Where are the flying cars? It's a common question in this day and age, particularly from those of us who grew up in a time with a lot of science fiction, a lot of futurism, and there were always flying cars, right? Most famously, Back to the Future 2, which came out in 1989 or 90, I think, and everyone thought the flying cars were so cool, and that took place in the year 2015, which is two years ago, soon to be three years ago, and there are still no flying cars. That was the sci-fi dream. I've actually talked about flying cars on the podcast before and why they will never happen, right? You can go back to our back catalog of episodes and hear me talk about that. The reality is, though, flying cars have not been as exciting an idea for companies to work on or as realistic as an idea as people thought they were back in the 70s and 80s and even 90s when we were talking a lot about flying cars. You'll notice very little sci-fi now includes flying cars because we've kind of accepted 
it's never going to happen. But Uber is working on it anyway. That's technology for you, right? Nobody's saying they can't. They're only saying they can. Uber is very, very serious about this. And it's not just Uber. 19 other companies are working on plans for flying cars. 19. That is a pretty incredible number. Now, there's a lot to talk about here. There's a lot to unpack. Why are these companies so invested in this technology that had been rejected by our culture? Why is Uber so interested in flying cars, specifically because they're the most prominent company working on it? And why are flying cars unrealistic for most people? How is Uber planning on circumventing that? Lots of interesting issues and exciting issues because some of us are still really excited about the idea of whizzing around in a flying car like Doc Brown and Marty McFly in Back to the Future 2 and Back to the Future 3 and the end of Back to the Future 1. Everyone's really excited about that or should be really excited about it that, that remembers these pop culture, pop culture touchstones uh, that we grew up with, that some of us grew up with, and people continue to consume and grow up with. So there's just so much to talk about that we're going to have to handle it on next week's show. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Hope your holiday season is going well. I hope it's holly. I hope it's jolly. I hope it's everything else that you hope it's going to be. We will be back next week with lots more news and commentary on the exciting world of technology. We'll be back with flying cars. Will we literally come in a flying car? You will just have to listen to find out. In the meantime, have a great week. My name is Steve Tashankel. Courage.